but you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of grateful actually that I don't have like detailed recall of, they weren't like very awesome days to when I remember all the, all like the minutia of. I am thankful to not have memories of the sounds of my bones breaking. Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. If you are listening to this, there's a decent chance that you spend a good bit of time outside, and it's also possible that outdoor activities make up a large part of your self-identity. You are a skier, or a climber, or mountain biker, or runner. So what would you do if all of these outdoor activities were suddenly taken away? And more than that, what would you do if you were suddenly paralyzed? Well, that actually happened to our guest on today's podcast, Jim Harris. As you'll hear, Jim was as involved in the outdoor sports world as anyone, and he was quickly making a name for himself in the industry when a fluke accident and serious injury threatened to take all of that away. But that accident is by no means the end of the story. It's actually where the story really starts getting crazy. For the past several years, Jim has attacked his rehab, and he is in the midst of, to use his own words, a crazy recovery. Jim is now once again lifting, mountain biking in Moab, and basically doing the seemingly impossible. If you want to follow his adventures, and you absolutely should, you can find Jim on Instagram at Perpetual Weekend. This podcast episode is about a remarkable person with a remarkable story. And beyond that, this is a podcast about self-identity and perspective. I promise that if you listen to it, you'll see what I mean, and I'm confident that you will be the better for it. If for no other reason, then you will have gotten to meet and learned a thing or two from Jim Harris. Jim, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And where are you today? I am uh, sitting at my house here in Carbondale, Colorado at the moment. Okay. Um, how long have you been in Carbondale? You know, I moved here uh, just about a year and a half ago. Okay. And why Carbondale? I, um, I, was, I was offered a job working for a film festival. So I came and worked, uh, spent a bit more than a year working as um, program and creative director for Five Point Film Fest. We got to like, screen all the, all the submissions and pick the films to the festival, which was, um, that was a cool job. It was a cool way to be connected with uh, that kind of adventure creative community. That adventure creative community that you have been a part of for quite a while now, right? Um, what, I mean, we were, we were just talking a little bit ago about that maybe when you first headed to Montana, is that where you would kind of locate or, or start that identification? Yeah, I grew up, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Ohio and then um, moved to Montana when I was for, for college, for university. Um, so I moved to Missoula and, um, and really gravitated to like all the outdoor sports that, um, all the mountain sports that were available there. Oh my God, it is hailing like crazy here. <laughs> Sorry, distracted. Uh, yeah, it's like being, it, it's like one of those like, 
biblical plague. Yeah, it's like one of those state lottery things with all the all the ping pong balls like (laughs) bouncing around. Um, Anyway, I've definitely never heard hail described that way. So thanks for that. There's all these little. uh, I don't even know what little. um, Not quite. Not quite marble size hail, but large enough that I'm really glad I'm inside at the moment. <laughs> just like ricocheting off all the all the roof off the neighbor's house, and anyway, um, totally distracted. That's okay. Uh, yes, yeah, moved to Montana, and um, I really liked the culture there. Like, really liked all the the very DIY approach to being involved in the outdoors in a way that that culture doesn't exist. Um, in nearly the same way in the Midwest. Like there's an awful lot of emphasis on like spectating, like sports spectating in, in the Midwest, but yeah. a lot less participation in Montana. There was less participation more like, Hey, let's all go do this thing. And then we'll tailgate afterwards versus like starting Saturday morning with tailgating. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that about Montana and, uh, that led me to be, Pretty quickly, within within um, was already interested in skiing, but within a few months of moving to Montana, got a, a a beacon and shovel and probe and started started ski touring a bit, and then got more and more interested in um, more difficult objectives and overnight winter camping trips and um, and ski hut trips to British Columbia. And uh, after university, I moved to moved to Colorado and worked for Outward Bound and did outdoor ed stuff and then started doing guiding work and teaching avalanche classes. Um, and then somewhere in there with some Outward Bound friends in 2009, we went on a this big backpacking trip in Alaska. And we walked across the southern half of Wrangell St. Elias National Park that is part of this, you know, it's the U.S.'s largest national park. Mm-hmm. It's one of the largest um, contiguous preserved areas in the world. Like the if you include the national park and preserve and uh, the park that's on the Canadian side of the border, the whole thing is like bigger than Switzerland, bigger than Vermont. Like it's a big chunk of land. Um, so anyway, we went and walked across the park and I took all these, a bunch of photos on this, um, this kind of fancy point and shoot camera that I was dorking out with. Like that all the, had like manual controls, but it was definitely um, pretty small and compact. And so I posted, came back from this backpacking trip, posted all these pictures on the internet, and this this thread on on tetongravity.com totally went viral. Uh, huh. We got like tens of thousands of views um, for like a backpacking trip, and I ended up um, registering a, a web domain and and reposting the trip report there, and it kind of continued to go viral. I think people posted it to Reddit, and it made it like to the front page of Reddit on two different occasions. And like would crash my little WordPress site. And um, from that trip, I got introduced to uh, some pro skiers in in Salt Lake. Um, I was living in Utah at the time. And somebody was like, hey, we saw this thing on the Internet. And that looks really cool. Do you want to come to Alaska with us? Hmm. And that was like literally how I got an invite um, to go to uh, this remote part of the Alaska range. And so I bought a like a like a five hundred dollar SLR, bought uh-huh. a Canon Rebel camera and like a kit lens, and went on this ski trip with pro skiers and 
like wrote a story and had no idea really how the publishing world works. <laughs> so I sent like a like a DVD of, of photos plus like a printed out manuscript um, in a manila envelope to Powder Magazine. Hmm. Um, and they were really psyched about the article. And I think uh, Derek Taylor, who was the editor at the time, later told me that he thought I was like a like a 50 or 60 year old man because like nobody sends them things in manila envelopes. <laughs> and he was like, he thought, he thought I was an old guy because one of the, because yep. Andrew McLean was on the, one of the people on the trip was, you know, like in his like late forties, early fifties. Um, he's like, oh, I thought you were like Andrew's age. And, um, but yeah, that, that kind of opened the door into the publishing world for me. And pretty quickly I went from, you know, being a ski bum who was like doing guide work in the summer and waiting tables and tuning skis and things in the winter to doing, um, photo and writing work year, like full time and year round. And sorry, what? What year was the Manila envelope submitted? It's like 2010. Okay. And by the way, that's so fantastic. And I think this this probably stands as a good bit of advice for like young people without experience trying to crack into an industry. Just submit whatever you're going to submit in a Manila envelope. And you probably get like some you know, uh, wrongly assumed 10 years of, of experience. <laughs> I think you, I this is probably, you know, true. I think this could really help some young, some young folks out there. I mean, that wasn't like a totally naive thing on my part. Like I figured that as someone who had no, um, you know, like firsthand rapport with anybody at this magazine that like, if I just sent an email, it's no one's going to look at it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I figured like that maybe sending a physical thing that somebody would actually open it up and like spend at least three or five minutes with it maybe versus like, you know, open Delete. an email and click away within 10 seconds. Yeah, I like it. That's really oh. smart. That, and, was, that, and, was, that, was, that was the strategy. So I guess it worked. It did work. It was really effective. I, this is like the best tip I've, I've learned on this podcast, I think. Um, <laughs> so, and, and so that was 2010 and, and, just to so I have this framed. When did you get to the University of Montana? That was two thousand five. Two thousand five. Okay, so this is, we kind of went from zero to zero to one hundred over a, a oh, five sorry, year. Sorry, two thousand. I graduated in two thousand five. I moved there in two thousand one. Two thousand one. Okay. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I spent two thousand one to two thousand five in Montana, and then spent about a year in Crested Butte, and then moved to Park City, Utah. Okay. And yeah. Okay. Um, so going back to 2010, I mean, at that point, um, you, you are, you're an industry guy, you're, you're doing media, you're, you're writing, you're, you're, you're taking photos. I mean, you've this, are, are you at this point? You're like, yeah, this is just kind of what I do and I'm, and I'm making it work. I mean, I feel like I had the way, the, the reasons it was able to work out for me was one because um, University of Montana has really inexpensive tuition. So I was able to graduate without any college debt. And that allowed me to go be like a dirtbag and make, you know, under $20,000 a year doing like outdoor ed work and still be able to like pull it together to live in a ski town um, and live like, you know, like a full on mountain dirtbag lifestyle. Um, and so after a few years of that, I feel like I was pretty comfortable living frugally. Yep. And so, um, 
by the time I got like that first check from that article, um, and then right around the same time I got hired for, uh, like a commercial lifestyle shoot for a big, um, for, for, for a large brand that was like pretty much out of the blue. And it was definitely, I'd never been on the set of an actual photo shoot, much less had, uh, ever done like any kind of lifestyle shooting. Um, but all of a sudden I got offered like this, like a commercial photo day rate, which I think was like, like 1500 a day or something like that. And all of a sudden had a five figure check from that week that, um, I was like, Oh man, I'm, I'm not going to go back to waiting tables this winter. Like I can, if nothing else, I can totally coast on this check like for the next four months or five months. And, um, if I can set up another another commercial photo project just like this one in in that time frame, then I can just if I can do this like three times a year, I'll be making just as much as I was working like five jobs. And um, so that was that was the that was kind of the, the the ways that worked out for me because it certainly it really wasn't until like right before my accident that I feel like I was actually making what most people would consider like a decent a decent living. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I didn't have overwhelming debt and because I was because I was you know already acclimated to living inexpensively, yeah. um, was able to pull that off for a handful of years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, sounds like that's tip number two. Right. Like, I mean, this is great. Like, I think for people listening to this, um, people wanting to maybe, you know, get into or or figure out how to play a role like in the outdoor industry and and whether that's through writing or photography or a combination of both. I mean, one, manila envelopes. And then two, (laughs) I mean, you know, yeah, not taking on a ton of debt. Um, and, and then, you know, and, or being really good at living really frugally frees you up, um, to go pursue some of these, uh, things that are going to take time, right. To be discovered, um, to get better at the craft, um, to, mm-hmm. to yeah, two pretty important things. I think uh, aside from the manila, manila envelopes and living frugally, I mean, were there any other, like, what is the like last bit maybe of best advice? Um, you know, um, is it just the tenacity card? Is it the getting, getting repetitions? Um, in your experience, what, what was maybe, you know, or was it just live frugally and use manila envelopes or did you have a third? I mean, I think some of the things that were, that worked out for me in that situation. One is that, um, I think one is that, that I came to that media work from, um, like a background where I'd learned like institutional standards for like glacier travel and things like that. Mm Um, and that having that technical background, was a huge, which really, that was a thing that opened the door for me. And like, I was not getting invited to do these things because I was the best photographer, best videographer. I was getting invited to do them because they're like, ah, this guy is pretty good and he won't slow us down too much. Yep. Um, and I think that technical background, um, was really the, the reason I got invited to do things. And I think the reason that I like 
even attained mediocrity with that kind of um, media work was that it was stuff I really cared about and really enjoyed. Yeah. And I think one thing, like, like I think that um, that comes through in photographs, especially like across somebody's body of work, if they're doing something they really care about, that um, that that seems to almost always find an audience. And I don't know, but and I see like I feel like in the Instagram world, there's as like the whole brand influencer culture has become a thing. Yep. There's so so much um, media that's being created that is what I would be considered kind of pandering where people are spending a lot of time up front thinking about what's going to get likes, what's going to be like the most palatable. Um, and generally that means people are like looking to what else is, what has already got the other images that have gotten a million likes on, um, Instagram and trying to recreate that. And I think that, uh, that sort of like, catering too much to your audience, I think has, there, there's some like pitfalls to that around it being like fulfilling work and around even finding an audience if you don't have one yet. Hmm. I don't know that it, that it's like a weird paradox thing. I think for most creative pursuits where, um, it can be really difficult to trust your own taste and your own judgment, especially, um, when you don't see that, 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 that like, you know, lots of other people are doing this, this thing that you, that seems like pleasing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it seems like that must be something that you've dealt with, with doing it with, with blister. Yeah. Um, where they've created, created, uh, gear reviews that are in depth and analytical and critical in a way that nobody else was doing. And I can't imagine that's, it must have felt weird thinking that maybe there wasn't going to be an audience for it, that it was going to be too gear nerd, too, too nerdy for people yeah. and that bridges are going to be burned with manufacturers and people providing the gear. And, um, obviously that's not been the case, but I feel like that's a, you, you've certainly created kind of created a niche that, that was, didn't seem to really exist from what I can tell prior to prior to blister. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I think in, in our case, the, 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 like the, the lighthouse or the directive was what would it mean to build this the right way? Mm-hmm. And then every possible thing we did was trying to live up to that, to, to answer that question, right? Can we create a company and a publication where everything we do is to try to, to have it done the right way. Um, so that, that is pretty easy, right? And that's subjective and you can debate, you know, different ways to then, you know, how best to accomplish that, that mission statement. But that was the clear directive in our case. Um, and then I didn't really care what anybody else thought, right? It was like, this is, this is our best collective sense the people involved with Blister about where where we should be going and what we should be doing. I, I imagine maybe that's a bit different though than more of the kind of individual artist, right? Who is like, 
whether they are involved in writing or visual arts or, you know, painting or photography, because then it's maybe less about what is the right way to do this. And it's now more about, you know, what is, what am I passionate about? What's the story I want to tell? How do I want to tell those stories? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if you see those two things as more similar or different. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's some similarities there. I don't think that I had um, like a, it would have been really hard for me to articulate like an overarching yeah. goal about how I want to be, do the same thing that something that's similar to what other people were doing, but do it better and do it in my own way. Cause I'm not sure that I knew what my own way was to, yeah. to start out with. And you know, that, that, um, trip report about that backpacking trip was something that I think really catalyzed a lot of thought for me. Yep. It was like, why, it was something because I think it was partly because I was so blindsided by it. Cause it was something like that I cared a lot about because I just had this really formative month long backpacking trip. I mean, we crossed, we walked across a mountain range that had never been traversed before. We were like the first people to ever walk through it, across it, over it. Um, and so that was, you know, what a, what a, it was, it was this really powerful experience for me, but I didn't really expect that that was going to resonate with other people. I just kind of like posted this thing on the internet thinking it was going to have a small audience of people, you know, that I knew from like real life, but didn't necessarily see very often. Yeah. Um, and instead it found like there was some pieces in it that resonated with a much wider audience. And so that really caused me to question what it was that I, that, that what pieces of it or what combination of things, um, you know what why that captured people's attention so in that way because it's mm-hmm. like oh like there's there's something here that's working i'm just not exactly sure what it is or how to recreate it mm-hmm. yep. um, and i feel like it kind of and part of kind of finding finding my way toward you know stumbling my way towards towards being able to do that consistently was was an awful lot of kind of just like blind faith that there was Um, something in the, in the, in the, like the sort of the style and setup of, of the way I was working, yeah. like, like taking, you know, uh, a lot of expedition travel, fairly minimal camera setups. Um, and that maybe there, there was some combination of kind of throwing oneself into hard situations, um, without a very clear plan of like what the media outcome was going to be. Yeah. And coming back with something that was would have been hard to predict up front, but then it was ended up being really potent at the end. You know, I I do want to to get to this. Um, you know, so we have you in sort of 2010, 11, 12. We've heard this part of the story, and it sounds like you're sort of doing your thing and, and making it work. And then you've mentioned this accident, and um, hmm. I believe that that's in is it 2014 yeah in um november of 2014 um two friends and i had received a grant to go put this expedition together to ski across um patagonia's ice cap and so we had planned about a 350 mile ski and pack raft traverse through a really remote region of chile 
and we probably spent like a year per, like getting organized for this trip and uh we traveled all the way to chile and we had um I bought snow kites right before the trip. So I had these brand new snow kites. Um, I'd never even flown this particular model. And I really wasn't very good at like flying snow kites. Didn't have a ton of experience with them to begin with. So just before the trip began and like the last days of prep while we were down in Patagonia, um, I was flying a snow kite in a grassy, in a grassy field and like running shoes and got picked up by a gust and slammed down. And I'm not even exactly sure what the sequence was or how it happened but i i managed to break seven vertebrae um and like regain consciousness in this grassy field and realized that i couldn't feel or move anything from sternum down um so i spent about a week in a rural hospital in um chile before i was able to get evacuated back to the states and uh then i had surgery to fuse those broken vertebrae and um within a few weeks started noticing these small neurological changes where muscles that, that weren't firing all of a sudden you know like after a few weeks of not being able to move anything i could like um you know pick my heel up off the bed like a half of an inch hmm. um and it, like muscle controls it was really weak and kind of like flickered in and out but um, these nerve pathways started turning back on and reconnecting themselves or function was being maybe rerouted through other pathways that weren't damaged, but that were used for different functions before. Um, so then I spent about seven months in hospitals. Um, most of that time at Craig hospital in Denver, um, from really early on high fives foundation reached out, um, and I was like, you know, anything you need, we're going to, we're going to help you with your recovery. Um, and so they've been, they're, they're an athlete based nonprofit out of Chucky, California, um, founded by a skier who overshot, uh, overshot a table and paralyzed himself about 10 years ago. And, um, then has been on a mission to help with recovery costs for athletes in, in similar situations. Hmm. Um, Yeah, so like through through between Craig Hospital and High Fives Foundation, I've had like a in, in my family, I've had this tremendous support network that's really um, enabled this just just crazy recovery that I've had. Um, yeah. crazy like, recovery, I think, is yeah. a great way to put it. Yeah, like one of the big um, one of the big sort of determining factors in whether or not someone might recover from a nerve injury is how quickly that, uh, that nerve tissue gets decompressed because brains and spines are both inside these bony enclosures, right? We've got like a skull or a spinal column around this really soft, pliable nerve tissue. And so whenever there's any kind of bruising or damage to that nerve tissue, um, body's response is to, is to that area to swell and that swelling cuts off blood flow and that lack of blood flow kills the tissue. So that swelling in these confined bony structures is kind of a counterproductive, um, counterproductive body response. But because of that, one thing that can really determine the outcome is how quickly the thing people get decompressed. So for like traumatic brain injuries, they will, if it's bad enough, they'll just like fire up a little saw and take a big chunk out of somebody's skull, let their brain expand, um, 
outside of where their cranium would allow it to. And then as the swelling goes back down, they like humpty dumpty them back together. And, uh, and, and when that happens fairly quickly, the outcomes tend to be pretty good. Um, and so for, you know, spine injuries like the one that I had, they're usually moved right to the very top of the, of like the surgical priority list. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you get, have an injury, uh, like mine in a, you know, in an urban area in North America, you're probably going to be in surgery in like six hours or less. Um, and, uh, yeah, my, my surgery was like eight days after my accident. Oh my so I think from that fact, from that single data point, I don't think there was a whole lot of hope for my recovery. Um, that, you know, doctors would look at that and be like, oh, this is just like too, too far out to really, for there to be a chance of anything, of anything changing. Um, yeah. So, okay. You, you went real fast <clears throat> over those initial days in the hospital and at that time were you aware of what you just spelled out the you know an injury like this if you're if 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 surgery is undertaken immediately chances are good if you're waiting eight days that's a different story were you aware of that at the time i um I think that kind of came to my my attention. awareness. Yeah, it came to my attention sometime in this in that first week. Um, there was some debate. There was an orthopedic surgeon at the hospital that I was at who who I'm not sure he'd ever performed a surgery uh, like a spine surgery, but he wanted to um, he he wanted to try. And so there was I had to weigh the pros and cons of potentially being uh, being operated on by a by a surgeon in a foreign country, um, who probably wasn't very familiar with the procedure. And so kind of through that, there was like trying to communicate with people in the U S and trying to like, trying to figure out if I was in the U S what would be the course of action that U S surgeons would take and how does that compare and contrast with what's being offered in Punta Arenas, Chile. Um, and I opted not to be operated on there, which and it felt like a, I think by the time I made that choice, it was already like, like two days or a day and a half after the accident and kind of based on feedback, like, well, like whatever tissue isn't getting blood flow, hasn't been getting it now for like two days and that hmm. a surgery, you know, 48 hours out might not be that much there might not be a reason to rush at some point. Yeah. That was kind of the conclusion. Were you, what was your state of mind like on that? Were you like, holy cow, like maybe the biggest decision of my life. And I really don't know, you know, do I take the red pill or the blue pill? Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like in hindsight, that time frame, those days feel so compressed in my memory. Like it doesn't feel like it was, you know, more than a, more than a week or a week of laying there in a, in a foreign hospital. But I mean, I was hooked up to like drip morphine. So that probably had an awful <laughs> lot to do with it. But you know, I did, I had just gotten, I just bought a new iPhone just before like weeks before. So this is like brand new iPhone that, um, one outcome of this accident is that my like thumb typing has gotten way, way faster. Um, 
So it's been weird to like, I could look back and all the, the emails that I sent during that weekend, like lying on my back in the hospital bed, like with holding phones straight up, you know, over my face and typing, like trying to help to coordinate my evacuation and things like that. Um, and for somebody who was like drugged out of his mind, like, I'm like, Oh man, I, I, I sound fairly articulate. Like I have no recollection of writing that, but it yeah. actually like, huh, I'm surprised that I was that coherent. Whatever. Yeah. That coherent. Um, but you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of grateful actually that I don't have like detailed recall of they weren't like very awesome days to want to remember all the, all like the minutia of, yeah. you know, I've like talked to other people who have had, um, you know, have like broken their necks and unlike me, didn't knock themselves out in the process. Yeah. They're like described as like, you know, hearing their bones break uh-huh. and like lying there and like waiting, you know, in the 15 minutes it takes their friends to realize that something's wrong, like lying there and feeling just like helpless and being very aware of what has just happened. And I'm, I'm really glad that I was like regained consciousness and knew I was concussed and knew I was paralyzed, but was like pretty spun. Um, I'm, I'm, I am thankful to not have memories of the sounds of my bones breaking. Yeah. Boy, I don't even know how to fast forward the story. <laughs> I feel like we could just go sort of 10 yeah. hours on the next, you know, the, the next days and months. I think, a, and a big part of why I wanted to have this conversation is, look, I think a lot of people listening to this, um, one, I think there's a lot of us who are a whole lot like you in terms of the things that we are passionate about, um, the kinds of environments in which we are choosing to spend our time, you know, the kind of pursuits um, that we're doing. And, um, you know, t- frankly, and, and um, I think this is, this is a, a pretty damn morbid thing, but I, I feel like we are in a culture of, we see people that are, you know, getting after it in the mountains and, and tragic things happen, right? And every one of us knows the, we just lost another skier or mountaineer um, and social media blows up and there's a lot of, you know, this person was an inspiration. I think one of the things, um, as I've sort of from afar watched you and and your trajectory, um, you're someone who we are watching in real time, to use your phrase, have this sort of crazy recovery, um, an accident that took away, um, at least for a time, at least for a time, the things that, you know, the pursuits that you probably loved most in life. And, um, but here you are and we're watching you sort of come back and it's nuts. And I don't have a smarter thing to say about that, but I wanted to talk to someone who has experienced this because it sure as hell seems like there's going to be a perspective here that would be of value to the rest of us. Prior to my accident, I spent like a, a, a fairly good chunk of an average week in some kind of like flow state, um, feeling or some kind of like flow activity like that that really plugged in um kind of in the moment feeling that you that you feel when you're skiing downhill or or mountain biking where your um kind of your frontal frontal lobes of your brain shut down and you're making decisions without like 
reanalyzing um, those decisions as you're making them. You're like, oh, tree on the left, dodging right. Like yeah. things just happen. And that's a really rewarding feeling. You get all these, I mean, people talk about um, like the, the Midwest culture I grew up in. People are like, oh, you're an adrenaline junkie. But I always felt like that never really, dis- I'm like, Never, never described me. I don't. I, I don't feel like I, I. I'm not like a hucker of cliffs or, um, never like base jumped. I've never jumped out of a plane. I, I, I feel like I definitely like action sports, but I felt like the things that I was, um, that, that felt like so compelling to me, um, wasn't just the adrenaline and kind of. After being hurt, I felt like I was cut off from all the ways that I knew how to get to that really um, rewarding feeling, you know, like that runner's high yeah. kind of experience. And it was a few months after my accident, and I was in this hospital in Denver, and there was an hour a day that was was um, set up, it was a wheelchair class, where it was like how to navigate obstacles in a wheelchair. And as somebody who had ridden like bike trials in high school, I was pretty familiar with the idea of hmm. like how can we screw around to like how can I ride my bike up these stairs or over this thing? And all of a sudden I was like, how can I get my wheelchair up these stairs? Hmm. Um, so there was like some transference there of like, okay, I can see how this could be like a mental game. Um, and all of a sudden realize these wheelchair classes, like an hour would just fly by. And I remember that happening being like, oh, that was like, I just, I just had this like flow experience from doing this, uh, you know, from like wheelchair class. And I, that was kind of surprising to me. Um, and and so it's been interesting to try and kind of pivot to find other if that's a that that is a feeling that still feels really meaningful to me that like kind of that sort of mind state um so it's been like challenging and and cool to find other ways to tap into that that aren't you know like skiing biking sex really high stimulus things like that mm-hmm. um Yes, that's been that's been trying to find that through art and like um, like a daily meditation practice and things like that has been has been rewarding. Hmm. I think I would still if I could if I could just have a do over and go back to the life I was living before, I, I think I might still I'd probably still opt for that. But I feel like my quality of life now is is um, continues to be pretty good despite all this. This, this crazy accident and all the um, changes that have accompanied it. Hmm. <clears throat> you said might choose. Mm-hmm. Might, might choose to go back <laughs> to it. That's fascinating. Are, are you familiar with a book called Stumbling on Happiness? I'm not. It's by a Harvard psychologist named Daniel Gilbert. And... I would encourage just everybody to read this book. It came out a number of years ago, but um, the premise of Gilbert's book is that we are all horrible predictors of the things that will truly make us happy, Mm. and we are equally horrible predictors of the things that will make us truly unhappy. And one of the things he spends time talking, I think, over a couple of chapters about injuries, Um, you know, where as a healthy person prior to, you know, or seeing someone who's experienced an, an 
an accident or an injury. Oh my God, I, I wouldn't be able to cope. I couldn't handle that. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, you just said, yeah, I, I might prefer to go back to the way my life was prior to this accident. But I like my quality of life and the, the new challenges that I have in front of me. And um, I think there's something remarkable there. And I think it's interesting that, again, what you just said and the things that Gilbert presents a lot of evidence to is, you know, many of us think, my God, I couldn't handle that or that would be horrific. And you're like, dude, there's new challenges. There's, there's other things. There's ways to find, you know, the challenge of finding that flow state again. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely one of the things I wanted to ask you about and I didn't have to cause you, you offered it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's interesting that you latched on the word might there because I think, um, one thing that I've, I've noticed, you know, since immediately after my accident, people started coming forward, um, to share their, their stories of their like life changing injuries and illnesses. And one thing that is just like so common, it's a cliche, is people saying, like literally every single person um, who, you know, who comes forward to like empathize and share their story is like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish this as my worst enemy, but I wouldn't change it if I could. Hmm. And I remember just being like, oh, F that. Like yep. I would change this in a second. Like, yeah. are you kidding? Like, like, yeah, there's some moments of this where I can appreciate the challenge, but it's, um, but I feel like for a long time I would, I'd joke about that specific thing about like, oh yeah, everybody says they wouldn't wish on their worst enemy, but they wouldn't change it if they could. And it's like, oh yeah, I would, I would totally change this. Like mm-hmm. I want to hit the command Z button. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I guess it makes sense that the, the more distance I get from my accident, the more um, invested I am in like my current life pursuits and the less in the forefront, like my, the things I did before feel like, I don't know what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much that one of the big reasons I live in Carbondale, Colorado and not Utah where I was for like the nine years prior to my accident um, is that, is that I don't have a pre-injury past here and here in Carbondale, people only know me as this guy who showed up walking, you know, with, um, two crutches all the time, like a year and a half ago and now cruises around with a limp, but is otherwise going on like long mountain bike rides and, yeah. um, you know, getting more involved in the community. Like there's no, there's no, um, there's no like before, after, comparisons for me to make here and I feel like hanging around the Wasatch it can be really hard for me to not endlessly be comparing in my own head like how it used to be and like yeah. oh and we used to like I remember when we used to be up there on top of that peak for sunrise you know to shoot photos and blah 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 and now I'm looking at it from the parking lot or whatever mm-hmm. um but those kind of that that's I, I don't want to be somebody who lives in the past that way and as as much as I love the community um in the mountains and recreated in Utah, it can be hard for me to hard for me to push all of that, um, all those memories out of, out of the forefront sometimes. Where is your preferred place for people to be kind of 
following you on your your ventures these days is instagram facebook where yeah i feel like instagram is kind of the social media platform that i use most um, my instagram handle is perpetual weekend yeah so i mean you're talking about like yeah back when i mountain biked and it's like dude <laughs> you're mountain biking like yeah, this is no, the crazy part like yeah. i mean and you were just posted recently right um you were i don't know if it was porcupine rim but you were riding moab right like, oh yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> and I'm sitting there freaking out watching. I'm like, dude, get away from the edge. Like you're a little. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with how close you are to the to the edge of that cliff there. But um, I mean, this is this is. I mean, people need to. This yeah, has been. Sorry, I'm, I'm. Yeah, I went and rode Porcupine Rim. It was <laughs> like like uh, whatever rode Hazard Down or uh, sorry, I guess from below Hazard Down. Yeah. Um. And it was like totally casual. And then the next day we went and rode Mag Seven, which is you know like bull run to um what used to be called blue dot trail to portal mm-hmm. so that like that, that, that portal and and gold bar rim trail are, are freaking burly and those that, that ride used to be one of like my like very very favorite rides anywhere ever prior to my accident and it was like a it was an illegal trail until um like the year before last since since it's only been legalized since um since my accident hmm. and so i've driven i've, I've driven shuttle for friends doing that ride and been like uh like well that's probably something i'll never do again and then like i won't say i didn't walk like the hardest bits i definitely did but having Mm -hmm. said that i freaking rode like i don't know 90 something in the high 90 percentage of the of what's a what's a really difficult trail yeah um but also just like freaking stunning just a such a cool experience so i'm really grateful that mountain biking I, I feel like i'm much more capable on a bike um but if like you know hiking and things like that my right side's weaker than my left so like right leg gets tired and i start stumbling and falling and it's it's hard for me to go for long hikes but i feel like on a bike i can um like even when you know one leg gets super shaky and tired i can kind of keep going like it doesn't totally destroy my balance um the way it does you know when you're on foot yeah what has this recovery looked like for you i mean has it felt like the progress has been pretty linear or has it been like ton of plateaus ton of plateaus then this bit of a breakthrough back to a plateau what's that looked like since 2014 i mean in the medical world the the understanding is that neuro recoveries kind of tend to be logarithmic where recovery, whatever recovery happens for people tends to happen, um, fairly soon after the injury, then it slows over time. And, you know, according to surgeons and insurance companies after about two years after a neurological injury, whatever disability you have at that point is what you're going to probably have for life. Um, which is kind of a depressing idea until you start talking to people who have actually dealt with this. And every every single person I know who has one of these a neuro injury talks about like the um, unexpected changes that happened, you know, years and decades after their after their accident. Um, and so anecdotally, there's a lot of evidence that recovery goes a lot longer than two years. Yeah. And I guess as far as like how linear it feels to me, like it's um, I feel like, yeah, there was probably like that first six months of, 
of rehab where I could like from pretty much a week to week basis, I could feel that I was making progress. And then as that has like, um, as that progress has slowed, it's been actually like social media has been a really cool way to kind of have all these like different data points along that, along that curve, Mm -hmm. because from like a day to day in the trenches existence, it can feel like I'm not progressing. Like it just, um, it's not something I try and like fixate on, fixate too much attention on, but, um, like whether or not I'm making progress versus like doing things that just doing the things that theoretically should help me recover. Um, and, and not maybe trying to measure it all the time, but I feel like the, like social media has been a cool way to measure it where like all of a sudden it, it seems to happen. Like all of a sudden I'll have like this breakthrough where I'll like realize I'm capable of doing a thing that, um, you know, been inching towards closer towards these little increments, but all of a sudden when I can do it, it feels like this very like, you know, kind of this epiphany sort of moment. You're like, Oh my God, like, cool. I can, I don't know. One of the more recent ones from this spring was like, like realizing that I can jump. And I mean, my, my box jump right now is maybe a foot. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, but, six but there's a ago, box jump. Yeah. But six months ago, it was like, having the coordination and strength to like get body weight, um, to like break free of gravity. It was just like not even, not even close to being feasible. And now, now it is. Um, so it's things like that. Like, I mean, sure. There's been like a million little, a million little day by day progressions of getting stronger. That didn't, wasn't something that happened like in a binary way, but it like, it kind of can, I feel like my appreciation for my recovery kind of, happens in like these like with with moments like that and i feel like social media can be has been like a really has been interesting way to kind of like mm, celebrate those i guess yeah yeah did you pick up new sort of role models after the accident i mean did you were you looking around and you're like i'm fucking paralyzed in this bed and over the next several weeks, was it, has this been kind of about, you know, you're dealt this very particular hand and you got to go figure out what you, you know, what kind of, what kind of gains you personally can make, not what somebody else did or how they did it. Or, or was there this sense of like, were there anecdotes coming in about, oh, this skier or that mountain biker or, you know, some person in a car accident, these were the gains they made. Maybe I can accomplish some of that too. Yeah. You know, there was like an awful lot of messaging, Mm -hmm. um, towards people who are freshly injured around like a lot of this kind of like rah, rah, like you can do everything you used to do. Um, kind of like hospital propaganda Hmm. that's, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's well-intentioned and, um, there, there's certainly some truth to, to that. But at the same time, there was an element of it that felt a lot like bullshit to me. I was like, are you, like, you know, they're like, remember watching a like hospital, like literally like hospital propaganda of some like teenager in a wheelchair, like bragging, like, I never have to buy new shoes. And I was like, oh, yeah. F that. Like, I don't want that to be like my, like, my, like, why I'm psyched for life because I get like good parking and don't have to buy new shoes. Yeah. Um, but you know, so some be, you kind of 
counter to that, something that was really meaningful to me was a man who had been a student in an avalanche class I'd taught, um, reached out, and like a year after we had a course, to, this avalanche cl- class together, he was um, had a spine injury and was paralyzed for a while and had relearned to walk. But um, in this letter he wrote, you know, they no longer backcountry skied. He was no longer running and mountain biking, but um, instead he'd gotten his pilot's license and he'd gotten really into fly fishing and he had this amazing drift boat and a bunch of friends um, who were psyched on, on flying and on fly fishing. And um, he'd like, through this, through this process, he'd met a woman and got married. And he was like, you know, my life is much different now than it was um, like four years ago before my accident, but, he, but life is still really good. And I reread that letter a lot because it, there was a lot of meaning in there to be this like, okay, like there's, that it felt a lot more honest to say like, okay, you know, I don't, probably not going to have the exact same life that you had before, mm-hmm. but, um, that doesn't mean it necessarily is going to be like worse. Yep. Different isn't necessarily worse. Yeah. It takes some, certainly takes some like creativity and an open mind and things to, and, and like probably just some time yeah. to be able to like, um, you know, I'm sure probably anybody who's been through a divorce will probably have a similar outlook. Mm-hmm. So what are you most either obsessed with or passionate about today? Is it, is it these, I mean, you know, again, as a, as somebody on the outside watching this remarkable recovery, you know, I see, we're seeing these moments of like, I'm like, man, damn it. The dude's fucking mountain biking porcupine now, you know? And Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, is that the stuff when you're waking up, you're like, can't wait to see what I can, where I can push things and make progress today? Or is, or is that more kind of like, dude, that's, that's my routine. Like I'm, you know, I'm, we're still working on some of that, but my head and my passions, my interests are really actually directed over in this other area. I think. I don't know. I, I think, no, I think my interests are like, I, I have not been done any ski mountaineering since getting hurt. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd say like my, my interests have shifted a lot. I think the kind of outcomes and the things that I look for from those, the things I get obsessed about, um, that tends to be an awful lot of overlap in the things I take away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely miss skiing a lot because it checked it checked a lot of boxes for me. Like it was like had the athletic challenge and then all this, um, mental challenge around planning and prep and, um, you know, communicating with, with partners and having this really intense working partnership around like logistics and avalanche stuff. And then on top of that, just like all the social, like the social scene and the validation that came from being good at that. And, like it, it checked an awful lot of boxes. I don't think I've found anything that replaces um, all the roles that that skiing had in my life. Um, and so that's something that's like still kind of a pretty melancholy feeling for me. But you know, I've gotten more and more involved in art stuff in the last, um, especially in the last half a year. I bought a printing press, so I've been making a bunch of relief prints. Um, been making a living as an illustrator for like the last six months and had my first solo art show recently. Um, 
so that's been a cool thing to kind of like throw myself at with the same sort of like and and with you know similar tenacity i guess and like um yeah i don't think it's like it doesn't feel like it fills the role that skiing used to have in my life um or at least not yet but it does seem like a like something I'm, I'm psyched to get more and more involved with. Where can people go to see your work or, <laughs> or can they yet? <laughs> oh man. Um, come on, man. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've registered, uh, another domain and have a built website web store that has zero inventory posted. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, it's been, it's been, it's been really flattering and really, um, cool to, to, to experience this demand for, um, art and illustration work. Like Mm -hmm. the, the photo video stuff was, was such a hustle. Like it was really not until just in the months leading up to my accident that I felt like people were, clients were coming to me for, um, for photo and video jobs. And like kind of that last year of, of doing the outdoor adventure media stuff, I feel like I had a lot of work coming my way, but uh, you know, the, handful of years prior to that were just a total hustle and, um, me, a lot of me scrounging, scrounging for work and for like the next paycheck and, um, the illustration stuff, I feel like I've have yet to get a real online portfolio cause I keep being offered more and more projects. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's been a, I would not have ever guessed or foreseen that there was going to be the sort of demand that I've experienced pretty cool so you yeah but we, right can, now, we, we can't see your stuff because it's all oh there's ton- a social, there's an instagram social media account at gorgeous storm and there's a <laughs> there's a built but not fleshed out website at gorgeousstorm.com. um but yeah for right now i feel like a perpetual weekend on instagram is probably the the best spot to follow along okay <clears throat> so we we've don't have much time left here, but I want to ask you then about, um, I always just love asking people books, movies, music, visual arts. Um, you can answer either like right now in time, which of those genres are most important to you. And, and and then I'm also kind of curious, like, have those been the same genres, like whether it's books or movies or music, visual arts, has that also been true of the last year or two or three? Mm, I'd say, you know, I, I've gotten way into like the personal development, AKA self help sort of genre in the last handful of months. Hmm. Um, and that sort of came out of like, I I got, I was really depressed at the end of 2016, um, where I'd had like kind of this like combination of life events where it felt like sort of all the points of stability started disappearing at once. Hmm. And like this existential angst that I think a lot of people in my situation feel really soon after their accident, for whatever reasons, I was able to like kick that can down the road for two years Hmm. and kind of read it like the two year anniversary of sort of like between a breakup and being laid off and like a Trump election and like 10 other things, um, like all in like the same, you know, week, week long period or so. It was just like kind of got thrown into this really, um, kind of this despairing mind state for a while and it 
felt like a pretty dark place for a handful of weeks. And then at some point it seemed like, um, it was going to end one of two ways. And one of those was going to be, one of those was, was, was going to be a really, it was gonna be a bad ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one outcome of that has been like a lot of kind of self-development and, and journaling and, um, I feel like I've always kind of enjoyed trying to be self-analytical, but um, I don't know. There's been a lot of a lot of reading to try and find new tools and ways ways of thinking about it and ways of accomplishing that. Hmm. Do you have any top suggestions? I think um, two books that I think that I think are kind of almost a cool couplet, almost like sort of in a left brain right brain way are. Um, our book called uh, called Flow. Um, let's call it like Flow: The Psychology of Optimal Experience. Uh, but Mikal, oh man, I don't even know how to say the dude's last name. There's way too many letters and consonants. Um, <laughs> Mikal, see, Flow: The Flow: The Psychology of Optimal Experience. Yep. And um, and then another book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And Power of Now is like super woo woo. Um, It's a westernized take on a combination of Eastern religions that kind of hinges around this idea of being of being present, um, and I feel like that that sort of woo woo stuff doesn't is a little bit harder for me to like um, harder for me to take in than the more sciencey outlook of. That the book flow has, but you know, my reading these two side by side, I'm like, Oh man, these, these are like, this is talking about the same thing. This is like two different ways of thinking about and describing the exact same phenomena. And, uh, and I think both those books have been helpful in helping me to understand why I enjoy some of the things I enjoy and then trying to like, trying to figure out what other, what other activities, what other passions and pursuits might, um, check some of those same boxes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll post links up on the, on the show notes on the site, um, to this episode, to some of those, some of those books and maybe that stumbling on happiness that I, uh, mentioned as well. Um, Mm -hmm. so with, these days then, I mean, are, do you kind of self-identify maybe not first and foremost, but with writing, you're talking about writing and also illustrating. I mean, where, where do you self-identify with the arts? If you had to kind of rank, you're a writer first and an illustrator second or vice versa, or, or you don't think about it. I mean, I feel like the reason that, that the way it comes up is sort of like, I feel like it doesn't matter to me that much on a self identity level. I feel like it matters in conversation and it matters with like branding oneself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think I'm, I've been involved in arts and creative stuff since I was a kid and, but I've always been really hesitant to call myself an artist. There seems some, there's always seemed something like pretentious um, about that. And I feel like I'm like, kind of coming to terms with like, okay, like I can feel like I approach a lot of, a lot of challenges in life with kind of a, what most people describe as a pretty artistic mindset. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, maybe despite some of the hesitations I have about thinking of myself that way, maybe that's, maybe I should just like come around to calling myself an artist. <laughs> you kind of dodged the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> you didn't really dodge it you you, yeah. you gave the more i guess appropriate answer but it sounds like you're saying writing writing and the illustrating I I, yeah i haven't um i mean well i guess one problem with that question is that That, that that it's kind of come to my attention through all this, all this like self analysis that, um, our culture we we all like to build our self identity and our sense of self worth on the things that we do and especially our professions and um, and I think there's some pretty big pitfalls to that way of um, understanding oneself that it whether your self identity is built around, um, your profession, your avocation, or like, you know, the fact your status or wealth or sexiness or all those things are like, there's going to be a time when that, that way of understanding yourself doesn't work anymore. Hmm. And I think I've found that through my like kind of self identity as this, um, mountain guy Hmm. who like that, that identity seemed less, relevant and didn't seem to be who I was anymore after my accident. But that identity got like replaced pretty much immediately by being like rehab guy. Mm-hmm. Um, where I had like this, I had a very, a very, uh, clear and present, like next thing, the next phase that I would need to work on. And then kind of as my, the progress pace of my recovery has, has, you know, slowed down. It's like, okay, well I can't be, rehab guy forever this is going to be if my happiness is if my life satisfaction is coming from like these from like my my physical progress and my progress is slowing down this is just going to be like less and less um rewarding like that's that's not going to work as a way forward and so um yeah i think maybe this is what i mean about like (laughs) dealing with things with an artistic outlook um yeah, so I mean, I, I I wouldn't call myself a writer. I would call myself an illustrator, um, but yeah, I don't know. I'd say I think my I think the way the ways that I'm thinking about myself are in flux, and I'm not really sure that I have like a one word answer. Yep. So I feel like this super long answer just came out probably way more pretentious than just saying like artist. No, <clears throat> I like this longer answer because um, I think it's true. And I think that, I mean, frankly, I think it's really true, both in terms of how we size other people up and stupidly size other people up. Um, I love how you're talking about you were mountain guy. And honestly, like you kind of are rehab guy. Yeah. And it's like, how reductionistic is that? And... I think one of my favorite things about these conversations that I get to have with people on these podcasts is people are never as simple as we tend to see them. And honestly, like, and hopefully we're not personally as boring or simple 
as, you know, how the rest of the world might see us. So I think there's something incredibly valuable in remembering that. And even if we sort of get introduced to people and can't necessarily know the whole story, just keep in mind, like, there's more to the story. And keep, like, God, please let keep us from becoming entrenched folks that aren't continuing to grow and look and expand who we are and what we're thinking about and how we're processing and viewing the world, right? I mean, that's called, like, living a good life, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. That, that's really well said. That's really well said, Jonathan. You know, I think, like, one thing that, that makes me think of is um, is kind of this idea of having a beginner's mind where um, where you see a lot of, you know, where there's, you feel a lot of curiosity and you see a lot of possibility. And I feel like that was, that's a really important mindset for, for mountaineering and for um, avalanche being avvy savvy, where you're kind of constantly constantly trying to look at things with fresh eyes um, versus versus trying to be very aware of your preconceived notions. Um, and I think that's a, I think when you can carry that mindset to other areas of life, like interacting with other people, that all kinds of cool things happen. Like that, that I mean, I imagine, um, like that is the mindset you, you get to cultivate in yourself for doing interviews like this one. Mm-hmm. Like the kind of like this intense curiosity about 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 somebody. I feel like there's all kinds of places in life that um, I don't know. Life feels like it's a lot more fun when you when yep. to me when you're able to when you're able to um, think that way. Yeah. Yeah, and don't pigeonhole people or things or ideas and and. Um... Yeah, it's and it's like not only it's not even that it's more fun, it's it's just more true. Right? It's both. Mm-hmm. And um yeah. Yeah, well, it's more um it opens up a lot more opportunity for interacting and it opens up a lot more um there seems to be like a lot more serendipity in life. Hmm. Um when you engage that way. Hmm. I guess is my impression. On that note, <clears throat> maybe we should leave off for now. I, I know I, I've kept yeah, you for a while. Off to, and, and, off to my Friday afternoon um, rehab session at this, <laughs> this uh, gym here in Carbondale called Ripple Effect. Huh. And the owner of the gym's taken um, a keen interest in my recovery. And mm-hmm. she's been so cool to work with. And now there are a couple other people in Carbondale um, a school teacher who was paralyzed creek boating last year. He and I work out together on uh, on Friday afternoons, hmm. um, and so this gym's called Ripple Effect. And so when when Nate and I are in there, then we put a C in front of it and call it Cripple Effect. <laughs> um, uh huh. So I'm about to go off and have my uh, go go Cripple Effect for the next two hours or so. Go Cripple Effect. Um, well. Make sure you say, you know, if you're late, you know, you're late because it's my fault. And uh, I'll, I'll, t- I'll take the hit on this one. Um, uh, but Jim, this has really been great. I really appreciate the time and the conversation. And um, Perpetual Weekend uh, at Instagram is the place where you can see uh, a, a remarkable trajectory. And uh, 
I think you probably already have the sense that this is a pretty remarkable guy we've been talking to and um, wish you a lot of success um, on the rehab front. Um, it sounds like you need no uh, w- good wishes on the illustrating front. It sounds like you're, you're crushing it. Uh, I just need to get my scene together to have <laughs> make my art more available for people to buy. Yeah. Yeah, consider this the the kick in the ass, and uh, hopefully we can uh, we can all go look at more of, of the work um, sometime soon. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the interesting conversation today. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Jim Harris for the conversation, and to our strikingly handsome audio engineer Justin Bob, who is moving across town this weekend. Good luck with the move, J Bob. And I'm really sorry that I'm not around to help because fun fact. I worked for a moving company the summer before and after I started college. It was the second worst job I ever had, but I got to be quite good at moving really heavy things by myself, like washing machines. Anyway, till next time, head over to blisterreview.com to see what we're up to there, and we are already super excited to share our next podcast with you. It's another really good one, so subscribe to the Blister Podcast in iTunes or in Google Play, to make sure you don't miss it.